Welcome to Connected with Micah, where we bring together hope and information to help support your life. Join us on this journey in connecting the dots and finding answers to your most challenging health issues. So let's connect where no topic is off limits. Common interests prevail, but opinions don't always align. This is Connected with Micah. Welcome back to Connected with Micah. I'm Micah, your host, and today we are picking up our second episode with Haley Greer, who is the director of the Ark of Texas Master Pool Trust. And in our last episode, we were talking about what a Master Pool Trust is, the different types of trusts, and why it is so important for us to have those in place when we have loved ones or family members with a disability, regardless of what kind of disability that is, especially if they're looking to receive any state and federal funds like Social Security, because oftentimes life happens and changes occur and very discreet changes happen that can be truly insidious in the way they affect the lifestyle and the long-term care of our loved ones. Meaning that we discussed about how simple a give me life insurance policy that a company gives an employee, you know, could affect the person's income or ability to still participate in social security. If that is a sign to go to the dependent if it's from a parent or a child. And so things that happen, whether a grandparent passes away and has assets or mineral rights or, or gifts that when they created their will, you know, 15, 20, 30 years ago, this wasn't an issue because the child was itty bitty and the child wasn't receiving uh, federal funds. So we've been able to touch on that. What we're going to do today is we're gonna pick back up and recap for all of you listening on the distinguishing differences between a third party trust and a self-settled trust, what resources go into those. And then we're gonna talk about some new exciting pathways or vehicles have been created state by state called the ABLE program and the ABLE plan and what that allows you to do with monies from your trust. So welcome back, Haley. We are so happy to have you. And let's just dive back in to a summary and tell our listeners again, the two types of trust and why I think we agreed is tell me if I'm correct, that pretty much everybody needs one of, of each of these, correct? Absolutely. Everybody a hundred percent needs um, at least one trust and most of you will need to. So thank you so much for having me. And um, I'm excited to be able to share this knowledge with folks. Um, I want everybody to know, tell everyone, you know, uh, yes, a trust is very important. Um, and so I will recap on a couple of things. Number one, what is a trust? And a trust, uh, for those of you who have heard it, because, you know, I went to law school and everybody, you know, the only thing I knew about trust was like trust fund babies. And like, there's all these people who have a ton of money and can't do something until they're 26. And then dad gets mad. And that's not the reality of what a trust is. A trust is really a relationship between a beneficiary, the person that the trust is set up for, and a trustee. And the trust is a document. It's a piece of paper that gives rules about how money can be spent. And a special needs trust or supplemental needs trust is one that's specifically drafted so that an individual's means tested or government benefits are protected. And 
when you look at trusts or supplemental or special needs trusts, you've got two different kinds. We have third party and first party or self-settled. A third party trust is the trust that you want to use with your will, with your life insurance policy. This is your money as a parent that you're setting aside for a person with a disability. And then a self-settled trust is an individual with a disability's own money that they're setting aside for themselves. So that is the big difference. Who owns the money that is being set aside? A third-party trust is the one that you're going to use, uh, like we were discussing earlier, life insurance policy. It's the one that you're going to have where you say in your will, I want the funds to be left not to this individual, not to my child, but to a special needs trust for my child. Whereas a self-settled trust is going to be a trust that is that individual's own money. So we talked about briefly in the last episode about child support. So at 18 or 22, depending on the specific situation, child support for an individual with a disability becomes income to them. And so those are the types of things that you would put into a self-settled trust. Now, one of the things I want to be sure too is that our listeners understand that not only does it become income to them, but child support, when it transitions to being income, that income is different than income that that child actually earns. And so the other thing too that I learned in our discussions and even with looking at the palms and looking at social security and the palms is a a manual that helps explain the ins and outs for social security. But I didn't realize, I always thought income, you'd hear about different rules of a two thirds rule or that a, a consumer or an individual could earn so much without it affecting their social security or reducing it by a certain amount. But I didn't realize that there was earned versus unearned and unearned with social security is viewed differently and creates even more of a necessity to have a trust in place. Because in our situation with, with the conversations I've had with you is I learned that unearned income is dollar for dollar reduction. So if your loved one were to qualify for social security benefits, and let's say the full amount at, let's say 783, and especially if they're medically complex or have a lot of additional issues, you're receiving child support on behalf of that child. Well, as an adult, it's no longer child support. So even though it comes to me or my name, the reality is that it doesn't even have to hit a bank account from what I've understood or learned that to have that child's name on it, correct? That That it just court ordered, if it shows that it is being paid to you for the use of that individual for their care, then it's then at that point after 18 or 22, depending on the circumstances of that individual considered unearned income. And so I think that that to me has been one of the greatest revelations as we see generations of children starting to grow up especially through this autism epidemic. And so for you to share that, because this is vital. So go ahead. Yeah. And I think that that's a great point to make, you know, unearned income for somebody who's receiving SSI is huge. And so this child support and these self-settled trusts are really important. 
if an individual just receives $50 from someone, that's unearned income and should be reported to Social Security and actually reduces somebody's SSI. And so that's something that not everybody recognizes or realizes. So I think it's important to know that these self-settled trusts are here to be able to receive those funds so that the individual can continue to receive that such small amount of money that they receive in SSI to be able to survive in life. And so it's important to understand that you want to plan for your long term with your third party trust, but those self-settled trusts or first party trusts, those are the more sticky situations, honestly. They're they're the ones that you're looking at, oh, this is counted as income to this individual. So we want to make sure that they can continue to receive their benefits, they can continue to receive their Medicaid and still improve their quality of life with these child support or other income um, that's coming into a self-settled trust. So with that being said. One of the things that I'm trying to think about from a reference point when the ABLE programs or plans were beginning to be passed legislatively in the different states, I know it's been a few years now, but for Texas, when was that? Do you know when that was initiated? Yeah, so um, 2014, the end of 2014 is when President Obama signed into law the ABLE Act, and then Texas actually jumped on the bandwagon really quickly. I was able to work with some other organizations and Senator Perry to actually get that passed in our uh, 2015 legislative session. So 2015 is when we actually passed it. However, as bureaucracy happens, it did take us a number of years to actually get the program established in Texas. So it wasn't the ABLE program in Texas opened up in, I believe it was 2018. In May of 2018 is when they opened up. There are ABLE accounts that have opened since the summer of 2015. And then there's others. Uh, Most states have a program now. Texas, like Florida, you have to be a Texas resident in order to use the ABLE account. Uh, However, other states like Ohio and Tennessee and Maryland and some of those others, you don't have to be a resident of the state in order to use them. I direct people to the ABLE National Resource Center, ablenrc.org. That website has every state. They have every bit of information about every state that you would want to know. It allows you to compare to see what's best for you and your situation, how you're going to be using your ABLE account, how often you're taking things out, that sort of thing. So visit that website and definitely um, check out the ABLE accounts there. And we'll talk a little bit more. So what are some of the uh, benefits and what is the ABLE account exactly? What, What is it set up for and how does it relate to my self-settled trust. An ABLE account is a savings account for a person with a disability. So that's the number one thing to recognize. It's a savings account. It's a savings account that can be invested. You get to decide how you want your funds to be invested. It can be invested and it grows tax-free. So think Roth IRA. You put the money in after tax, uh, but then it can grow tax-free. So any of the earnings that you have on those accounts will grow tax-free. So you can use those funds how you please, as long as it is for 
what the IRS deems as a qualified disability expense. And when those rules were written and when everything sort of came out about that, there was a lot of, I was kind of chicken little and I was like, the sky's gonna fall because they're gonna do it wrong. But then the IRS surprised me in such a beautiful way and they actually have some great, very liberal rules around what the money can be spent on. So they were very open and they said, as long as it is for the person with a disability and it is something that falls into a myriad of categories, it is qualified disability expense. So housing, which this is the huge piece that you can do with the ABLE account. We briefly spoke about this earlier, and I want to touch on it all of the listeners. So if you are receiving SSI and somebody else is paying your rent, you get a reduction in the amount of SSI that you receive. Well, if money is placed into an ABLE account, whether it's an individual's own savings, whatever, you know, money from working or whatever, if rent is paid out of an ABLE account, then it doesn't reduce benefits. ABLE accounts also have their spending allowances are much broader than a special needs trust. They have slightly less restrictions. There are opportunities that a special needs trust has that an ABLE account doesn't. So they work very well hand in hand. And so when you and I were talking about getting a self-settled special needs trust set up, one of the things that you find is as a trustee of a special needs trust, you have a lot of rules you have to follow. You have to keep up with social security and what random thing today they decided can or cannot be paid for out of a special needs trust. A number of years ago, social security said, if you pay anyone for something for a person with a disability, it is considered income to that individual. So it didn't matter who I paid. If you purchased something for your loved one, if you went and paid, you had a special needs trust with with us or with him, you went and got um, Jacob something, you went and bought him some clothes and you said, I want to be reimbursed from the special needs trust. If I paid you, it was then considered income. Oh this my gosh. a random thing that social security decided to do one day. Thank goodness they got over that. They they realized that was not exactly the best way to move forward. And so they changed those rules. But as a trustee of a special needs trust, you got to keep up with that stuff. So this is where the ABLE account comes in and is so fantastic. So funds from a self-settled special needs trust can be transferred to an ABLE account. Then you can use funds from that ABLE account in order to spend money on that individual with less worry about coming afoul of any of the Social Security's rules around how special needs trust funds can be spent. So as long as it's being used for that individual, you can pay for things like a cell phone, you can pay for housing, you can pay for food, you can pay for those sorts of things out of an ABLE account. Whereas sometimes with a special needs trust, that's not allowed within social security's rules without there being an effect on an individual's SSI. And that's so important. We have so little money to work with. With $783, you want to make those dollars stretch just as far as you can. And as families, this allows you an opportunity to work both with the ABLE and with either a self-settled or a third-party special needs trust where funds can be placed into an ABLE and an individual can use them. The other thing, and I'll get off my little like high on ABLE, is uh, the thing that I love about ABLE too is that the individual 
owns that account. If they have a guardian, the guardian owns that account. But if it's an individual who doesn't have a guardianship and doesn't need a guardianship, this actually allows them a lot of self-determination and it allows them the ability to have some independence. Whereas oftentimes when it comes to money and people with disabilities, that isn't available. And a lot of the programs really have systems set up that allow an individual to be able to have access to a portion of those ABLE funds to do what it is they want to do for themselves, which is awesome because I'm all about self-determination. I'm all about independence and, and creating those opportunities where an individual can have them. And I just love ABLE and I get real excited. About it. <laughs> well, and it sounds like that, especially for individuals that do have any disabilities, that they are able to participate and manage a good portion of their life, that this gives them the opportunity without having to deal with the additional headache having a trust and a trustee and having to maybe debate more or justify more on some of the most basic things that people should have the right to make decisions with regarding their life. So I think that's phenomenal. That's the case. Now, let me ask you this with the ABLE account, then if we're looking at having a, let me ask this funds, when we're talking about a third party trust or a, self, a self-settled trust. The question is, do you ever want to use, take funds from either one of those to put into the ABLE? Is that permissible? Is that if you've got resources in both pots? Yeah, so absolutely. You can use funds from <laughs> either or both. One of the things that we didn't really touch on in the last episode and, and that I do want to make sure is pointed out is that so self-settled trusts, this is the reason that you want to get a third-party trust set up. This is the number one reason on top of a few others. But the number one reason is that a self-settled trust and an ABLE account both have what's what we term a Medicaid payback provision. Okay, so if an individual's own money is set aside for themselves to be used in a special needs trust or in an ABLE account, if that individual passes away, the state Medicaid programs where that individual received services with a self-settled special needs trust, we have to contact Medicaid, find out how much that was, and whatever's left in that self-settled special needs trust goes back to the state of Texas. So they have what we call back the, the Medicaid payback provision. With a self-settled special needs trust, it's for the lifetime of that individual, okay? So no matter what, we are going to pay back Medicaid up to the amount that is in the trust for services rendered on their behalf. So then sorry. you're telling me, sorry, so here, what I'm hearing you say, and this is important from a, a family standpoint, is that this is why having that third-party trust is so essential because if you're having assets that maybe multiple siblings or something of that nature, and you're wanting to be sure that the person with disabilities is getting a distribution from that primary bulk of funds, maybe left by parents or grandparents, instead of having it set up to where all of that money is put aside for that person. And if you had it in a self-settled account, then all of the monies upon that person dying spontaneously would be claimed by Medicaid in conjunction to what Medicaid had spent on that individual of their lifetime, correct? That's correct. And so then you don't get to leave the rest of those funds if you don't plan correctly. Yeah. You, the, the rest of those funds don't get to go back to those other siblings. So right. They, instead, it goes back to the state. And that's why planning is so, so, so important. 
that is why I just, I, I, that's why I want to tell folks, like, I don't want to have to put money in a self-settled trust if I don't have to. If, if you can plan appropriately, going into that third-party trust allows the rest of your loved ones to actually benefit from all of the money that you worked hard for, and it doesn't have to go back to, to pay back the state. Not to say that the state doesn't deserve credit for all of the great things that they do provide for folks. We wish they would provide more, but, but that's really where the difference is with the self-settled and the third party. So what we recommend both with the third party trust and the ABLE, because the ABLE has the same Medicaid is a creditor. It's the first creditor on an ABLE account. So it's a little bit different than the self-settled special needs trust. And the ABLE is from the inception of the ABLE account forward. So there's, there's some slight differences with the Medicaid payback provisions in the those two, I do recommend, I always recommend using the self-settled money first. If you have third-party money or if you have self-settled money, use that first party, that individual's own money first. Use that money to pour over into the ABLE account. Use that money out of the ABLE account. So you just want to make sure you're using all of that money first. That's my opinion. That's my recommendation is always use that individual's money first and then go to the third party Well, and I think that's important because I think a lot of families may have the mindset or the parents or guardians that if you have three or four children, that one of the things I've thought about is the resources and things I put in place that would be there for Jake while it may be appropriating more resources at the time for him versus the other siblings, the reality is that I am doing that to help further or better ensure that they are less burdened long-term with the fiscal responsibilities associated with his care. And in doing that, I could see where some families would possibly consider leaving all their assets to the child that's disabled and not to the other siblings, not begrudgingly or not because of not wanting to to leave them something, but because they know that the long-term care is far greater than even what they're leaving to the disabled child. And so that's why I think it's important too for families to realize that if they were to put all of those resources in that self-settled account and something happened to that child, there's no way then if the other siblings are still alive to be able to receive or participate in any of that. And so I was curious then too, if having, you know, when you look at from the aspect of, the self-settled trust, then what are the rules from a third-party trust of what you can and can't purchase for your loved one? Is there, are we still good with, because it's in the trust that we can buy as far as from social security? Because I'm curious if families need to think about when they have both having a bulk deposit each year, go from third-party trust to self-settled trust, and then that's in there to help with covering expenses, or is that something? So um, never transfer money from a third-party trust to a self-settled trust. Keep it in the third-party trust. Good to know. That's important. So the the main differences between a third-party trust and a self-settled trust, a self-settled trust has what's called the sole benefit rule. So that means that you can't pay for anything that is going to benefit someone else that is not the beneficiary. So Social Security has some rules, like you can pay for somebody to travel with that person, but you can't pay for them and the rest of the family to travel. Whereas a third-party trust has some slightly different rules because a third-party trust can actually have multiple beneficiaries. So it could have 
all of the children are in there. Your child, you know, so Jake has his section that is specific for special needs. They only use it for the special needs piece. So there's ways to sort of make that work. And so you actually can benefit others with a third party trust. They just don't have the same rules on that end. So that's where you could see if you have all your kids in one trust together that has special needs language in it, then you're able to pay for things for them and for Jake. It doesn't run afoul of social security's rules. A self-settled trust in an ABLE account, they have to be specifically for that individual while they can benefit someone else. So like you can pay for caregivers and things. Of course, that's going to benefit that person because they're getting paid for their services, but it doesn't benefit in the sense that they're just getting something for free. Um, so you kind of can't give anybody something for free without them providing some sort of, you know, service, companion, you know, things along those lines um, from a self-settled or enabled account. So those are the things, that's really where your differences come in. So you want to keep third-party money in your third-party trust. The one place that you would want to transfer money to, if there is no self-settled trust anymore, so say that's gone, maybe that's the parent that passed away and maybe was paying into the child support or whatever. So now you've got this third-party trust and your ABLE account was actually paying for rent or your ABLE account was paying for food. You can transfer money and I don't recommend doing bulk. I recommend doing it on like a monthly basis or an as-needed basis because again, payback provision. If that person passes away, you don't want to have a ton of money in there unless you're using it as, as an investment vehicle. But even then, I don't recommend having a ton of money in there. Just again, you've got those payback provisions. And so you don't, you, you want to make sure that that bulk money is sitting elsewhere, unless it was the individual's own money. And then use it. I recommend, I'm, I tell people all the time, like, use the money. It's there for a reason. Use it. You know, don't let it just sit there when you could be absolutely miserable. I mean, obviously you want to plan long-term. You know, you want to think about those things. And you as a parent are not necessarily the rule of what I hear from folks about, I want to leave all the money. I want to leave extra money to my child with a disability. I hear a lot of parents say, well, I'm just going to leave it to the other sibling and they're going to take care of them. Mm. And I tell families, do not do that. Period. End of story. Don't do it. A, you don't know what's going to happen to that sibling. You don't know if they're going to get married or divorced mm. and what happens to that money at that point. If they die, what happens to the money at that point? So that's why it's so important to have that plan in place to get those third-party trusts so that you've got the money that is safeguarded for your loved one with a disability. Yeah. And you bring up a good point that, and that's funny because from my thought process, I thought of having the things uh, divided up ahead of time more so to ensure, not that I ever questioned what his siblings would do, but to your point, there are so many variables in life. How many times do we see that somebody gets remarried and then there's dispute between assets, um, whether it's a, a early on or later in life and who's going to care for who or who got this, or if it's tied up in court or probate or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so some of those issues, or then if the funds, think how much work it takes to get accounts set up. So if the children that receive the money weren't set up on the accounts, the checking accounts or the banking accounts to do the payments for the person with the disabilities, then you have a whole nother can of worms. So I could see where multiple issues would occur and how many times. So I'll tell you, even at my age, I think a lot of parents don't realize that if they don't have somebody else on the bank accounts, and you can probably preach to this, so you know what I'm about to say, Absolutely. then 
that money, if you pass, let's say if a couple were both killed in a car accident, right? And cash assets are in the bank that are needed and none of the kids, nobody's set up then to be able to access those bank accounts Tell us, Haley, what happens? How long does it take? When could a family member access to even pay on behalf of the person with disabilities? Am I correct that that would have to go through probate or wait till the death certificate? Yes, forever, forever. If there's a guardian in place, it's until the new guardian uh, is, is appointed, which can take, you know, weeks on end. One of the things that I find super important is just make sure you have a pay on death. Even if you don't want them as a co-signer on your account, it can be a pay on death a situation. So on death of the individual, it can move. If you have a rep payee account, I do think it is something that is important to make sure that you have a second co-signer on it. Just because again, people don't think about those things where you're like, who gets this money if I die? And I mean, I've thought about it and I don't have anybody on mine and I think about it all the time. And I'm like, I, I don't know what could happen to me tomorrow. And I preach it to everybody else and I don't even do it. So don't listen, don't, don't do as I do, do as I say. Okay. y'all. So, so when you talk about rep paying accounts, so tell our listeners, what is the definition of a rep paying account? Yeah, so a rep payee account is if an individual is receiving SSI or SSDI, some sort of income from Social Security, they can have what's called a representative payee. And this is for individuals who um, may not have the best skills when it comes to money. It may be that somebody is um, under a guardianship, or it may just be that somebody just literally needs help um, with making sure that their bills get paid or they don't trust themselves with their own money. Um, uh, and so they, they, call, they have what's called a representative payee. And representative payees can be a number of folks. They can be individuals. So somebody in the indiv individual's life, they can be organizational rep payees, which there are some of those across the country, you know, find one in your local area. And there are also things like providers. So oftentimes the provider that is providing services will also be the representative payee. And so that's what a rep payee account is. That's the account that the individual is receiving. If the individual who's in control of the money that is being received on behalf of a person from Social Security. And we touched on this a bit ago. If you have a provider that is your representative payee, they create what's called a patient trust fund. So add that onto the list of all of the trusts you now know about. There's a third party trust, there's a self-settled trust, and there's a patient trust fund. All three are different things and all three are treated differently. So those are the kinds of things that you kind of have to have to know there's a lot of weeds when it comes to this stuff. But I think what's great what you touched on. So, and this is very important to our listeners. So I want, I want everybody to lean in <laughs> to your speaker right now, because what you need to know is that when Haley's talking about a payee account, a rep payee account, how could that apply to you? And I'll tell you how it could is if you have a loved one that is receiving social security and they go into a group home living environment, let's say um, in, and I'm going to talk like an HCS, a home and community-based service home, and that company is managing their funds to be able to directly pay for their rent, their electricity, their water, their food. Then in this situation, the social security payment goes directly to them and it is their fiduciary responsibility to show how those funds are utilized. And I think that that's important for families to know 
that they also need to stay on top of and be aware of what the communications are, what the notices are, has, has payment gone up or down, you know, because payment changing and also the rep payee needs to know if any of the fiscal aspects have changed outside that they are not in control of as far as that the, the consumer is going to receive or has received. Exactly. And that's, it's important to know because the rep payee is the one that's doing most of the communicating oftentimes both with Medicaid and with social security, especially when it's a provider, you as a, as a parent need to find out, know what's actually going on with it, but also make sure that they're informed by what you've set up, what you're doing, what's on your side of things. Because what can happen is that social security and Medicaid both They kind of talk to each other, but you're supposed to be providing them all of the information that representative payee is supposed to be providing information to Social Security and Medicaid. And if they're not doing it because they don't have the information, that can ultimately mess up benefits and it can get really ugly really quickly. (laughs) And as many of you, I know you all have done this before, you've had to fill out those paperwork, you've had to do the appeals, you've had to call Social Security and sit on the phone for waiting two hours to see if maybe you can talk to somebody. You have to sit in the office all day trying to work something out. And so making sure that everybody knows what's going on is so important so that you don't have to do that. And so that if something happens to you, that somebody else knows what's what to do and that you want to make sure that all of that stuff is in place and everybody's talking to everybody so that somebody else doesn't have to go and sit all day at social security or be on the phone or deal with any of those appeals. Well, and to your point with that, Haley, is that, you know, in the conversations that we've had is that if many families, they are overwhelmed, it is daunting the task of getting set up for social security. And then if their loved one is medically complex and has a higher level of need behaviorally with the supports that are needed, um, what I'm, I'm beginning to see too is that you may have young children or children placed at an earlier age in housing or receiving what we call diversion slots, meaning that that they are in a state of crisis or their level of need is so extensive that they cannot be cared for by the parent or by the guardian at home, and they are pursuing a diversion slot for uh, sanctuary coverage, housing, you know, supports, uh, employees to, to be able to take care of them, which often looks like uh, some of the services, whether it be an intermediate care facility, an ICF, or whether it be housing through one of the waivers with HCS. And so, I think what's important for families to know is that when you're in a state of crisis, you're not going to be thinking about all these aspects. And if you've got child support coming in, if there's other monies that at the time wasn't an issue or applicable, and then you have somebody that's helping get you set up with social security, and maybe even at that time, there's not a conflict, I can assure you there's no red flag that comes up and says, hey, your loved one just turned 22. (laughs) Did you know that you need to set up your self-settled special needs trust to start having your child support placed in there so that it doesn't show as a ding or hickey for your loved one? And especially when you have that rep payee circumstance, 
uh, where the, the guardian or the parent isn't receiving the social security, that disconnect can absolutely occur. And I think that um, that was one of the reasons why I was so excited to have you on in these ongoing episodes is because this is, it's almost like the Rubik's cube, right? <laughs> like you turn one side and then you have to turn the other and the other. And so it's all very um, contingent on not only what is happening in the life of the adult, but where in the timeline of age is the child or the loved one? And then what resources are we looking at? And so I think that even when we go to um, our legal services, financial planners, that they do an excellent job of providing support, but you have to be very careful as the parent or the consumer in when you ask a question, you're going to likely get the answer to the question you asked. So if there is specificity or if, and like in my situation, when I first went in to get a trust created, it was more so for the fear that I had made a point to have multiple life insurance policies. And I knew that the funds from those would affect his services. And at that time, it wasn't even worried about social security. I was just concerned that what would that look like later, but we were receiving Medicaid, we were receiving class and some different programs. And so I wanted to be ahead of the curve and have a trust set up. But I remember going into my attorney's office and she specialized in elder law and amazing uh, supports and customer service. And I said, my exact question of service that I wanted, as I said, I need to get a, a, a trust, a special needs trust set up or a trust in order to ensure that if I die and my uh, life insurance policy is paid out, that it will not kick Jacob out of receiving supports. And then also to make sure that for my children, my other children, that things are divided up evenly. And so in making that one statement, uh, the answer and the solution at that time because of the children's age was a third-party trust. Yep. And it's, you know, as, as you say, the Rubik's cube, you know, every time that you and I have spoken, we go off on our own little rabbit trail of what's the next, what's this other thing that, that we realized is, is an issue. What is this other thing that we realize is something else that families need to know and special needs trusts, are a foundation, in my opinion. I, I really feel like they are the foundation of what it is, where you need to start with your planning. Um, start with, um, uh, you know, start with getting a special needs trust set up. Start with getting your beneficiaries um, uh, as that special needs trust. Do all of the things that you can to try to, to try to plan. And the thing is, is what I tell families all the time, you don't have to do this in a day. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. This is going to be a process. It is something that, you know, that is something that, that you're going to have to do. I have, um, which I'll, I will share with everybody. I have a letter of intent, um, which is the thing that I um, recommend families to have. The RQS actually has a fantastic resource that you can go on and you can create sort of your own um, plan um, with your loved one to figure out where do they want to live? What is their living situation? What is, what is their day-to-day -day look like? That sort of thing. That's a good place to start. And I'll share um, my letter of intent, which is just a word or a Google Doc um, uh, is what it is that you can take and you can fill in 
as you go, but know that like there are so many pieces to this puzzle. There are so many, you know, turns on this Rubik's cube and, um, it's going to take you a long time to get it together, you know, create and, and I'll work on a checklist actually for families to say, what are the things that you do want, um, uh, that that you should, should be thinking about. And, you know, it's not going to be perfect. Everybody's situation is different. Everybody is, um, you know, looking at different needs um, that need to be met. Um, you know, everyone has different situations. Some folks have, you know, caregivers that come into their home. Sometimes individuals are living in a group home. Sometimes individuals are living on their own and just need those supports to be able to to do a handful of things. But they can otherwise, you know, um, uh, live by themselves. I sort of think of my brother in that way. He lives with me. He does not have a disability, but I still support him every day in making sure that he does the things that he needs to do. Um, you know, he's 25. Uh, he came to live with me five years ago and yes, he pays rent. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we all need supports. And so everybody's supports look different. Um, everybody's needs look different. And so, um, you as a, as a parent or a loved one, think about those needs, think about what those long-term things are going to be and, and work on it. That's hard when you are dealing with the daily stuff. I get it. Um, but maybe set a time, you know, set, set aside a little bit of time once a month to say, I'm going to check, tackle tackle this check. You know, I'm going to get this one checked off my list. And I think one of the place, one of the good places to start really is with the special needs trust. Well, and I'm excited because this, if at least families can understand now why they need a trust and that when we say a trust, it's not just one trust, that it often can be two trusts that are necessary depending on their resources and uh, the, the individual's resources or that are assigned to that individual. And then also learning what the funds can be used on and how we can still remain compliant at a federal level and a state level, but be able to uh, make sure or ensure that the needs of our loved ones are met. I think that that is, is the biggest takeaway because there's so many do's and don'ts. And as you alluded to earlier, so many pieces um, change, you know, as far as what's permissible, what's not permissible. And I think to your point about the letter of intent, and maybe on our next episode, we can talk about checklists and things to consider when we're planning, because correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that letter of intent goes along with the trust, correct? Of saying... Okay. And so that to me is really important because when I started walking through and creating my letter of intent for Jacob with the third party trust at that time, my attorney, I mean, it, it labeled, what are the things he likes? What are the things that we want the money to be spent on? What are the things that are specific to him? And even more so, I took it a step further and dialed down to, um, from a health health, medical, and wellness standpoint that uh, Jacob, for those of you who don't know, he not only has autism, but he was diagnosed with celiac disease, which is where you can have severe gastrointestinal issues if you eat foods that have gluten, and then also was recently diagnosed with ulcerative colitis and Crohn's. So we are very proactive in his medical care that includes dietary supplements and special diets. And 
one of the things that I realized is if you're to pass and you have somebody assigned the guardian, they may not always know the why. So you can put the what in the plan and say, well, I need money spent for him on X, Y, and Z. However, if there is a migration of care, if it moves from one person to another, or even Haley, if it was to where the ARC provided guardianship services, if the story and the history and the why is not paired with the what, then that what can get lost. And my example to people is that in my consulting that I do with work and with practitioners, doctors in behavioral health, is that it would be as simple as me looking at you and going, hey, Haley, your blood work came back and your physician said that you need more vitamin D. Well, I can say that and you can kind of nod your head and walk out of the office and go, oh, okay, yeah. Micah said that Dr. So-and-so, when they looked at my lab, said I need more vitamin D. Woohoo! But if I tell you, hey, Haley, you need more vitamin D. And did you know that vitamin D is a pro-hormone, that it is needed for the production of neurotransmitters? It is also used in supporting the immune system and your response when you come in contact with different viruses, um, different infections. Also, that if you're using sunscreen when you're outside and you're not outside much, that you can't convert the cholesterol in your skin to produce vitamin D. And even if you are, there's studies that even with runners that have shown that they still were low on vitamin D and it's been tied to depression. So Haley, you need to take more vitamin D. <laughs> Which my doctor gave me that whole spiel a while back. <laughs> I am taking vitamin D. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's a great example of to use, but so to my point being that the trust is the fiscal financial part of saying that not only here's the shelter, for where these funds can go to ensure that they are there to provide support and care for my loved one. But then, as you mentioned, the letter of intent is critical because it outlines what are the things as their guardian that you are saying that are their desires, their likes, their wants, and then what are their needs? And we need to be sure when it comes to health, wellness, and maybe things that aren't as obvious like a, a smack in the head of why they need that, then I even went to the extent of creating not only the, here's this product, here's what he's taking, here is the data, meaning any labs, assessments, or physician recommendations, and here's why, here's what that product does. And so I think that as we're planning and looking, the fiscal piece is the foundation, the vehicle, and then the other aspects are, are where are we going with it? Absolutely. And, you know, it's so, it's just so important. And, and I tell families all the time, I just, I finally created my own letter of intent or template, you know, because I couldn't find one that really embodied everything that I thought was important. Uh, and so I just created one recently and I'll be sure to share it with everybody. And I did a, a presentation on it recently and we have beneficiaries. For example, we have this one beneficiary. He has uh, obstinate defiant disorder, I think is what it's called. Mm -hmm. And so the word no creates a lot of havoc in his life. Just, just saying the word no creates a lot of havoc in his life. And so 
for his parents to be able to create a letter of intent and give us that information that we can use when we're sending out care managers or somebody to go and visit with him and check on him. We can make sure that no isn't a word that is ever used. He really wants a time machine and you can't tell him that no, he can't have a time machine because they don't exist. Mom has said they're working on it. As soon as there is one, we'll get it for you because that's the easiest way to make sure that he's okay with that answer. But it's making sure that those little nuances, the little things, what are the things that are going to set someone off? What are the things that are going to make someone so happy? You know, I think about what kind of vacations does that individual take? Is there something that everybody, that you do every year? Those are the types of things that are important to include with your trust. And so as we talk about it from a, you need to get this done, but I think that there's also a way to do it in, in a way that makes you feel good about what you're leaving behind for your loved one. And that's what we want to see. That's what trusts are really about. I tell some parents it's about, it's your way to control after you're dead or something <laughs> like that. Some, some think it's, it's ridiculous and they would never do such a thing. But really, I think it's about ensuring that your knowledge and your experience with your loved one is passed on to other folks and that they're going to continue to receive the best care, the best life, the best quality of life that they can have when you're gone. And that's really what we want to see. That's why we want to see you planning. That's why, you know, call us at the Masterful Trust if you want to talk more about that. You know, I'm happy to provide information anywhere that I can. And we want families to really think about this and take it seriously. It really is important and it, it will impact the life of your loved one in such a way. And so really, you know, take an opportunity and, and sit down and think about this. And I'm not shaming anyone who hasn't done it, but do it. Okay. <laughs> well, and to your point, you're right, because here's the thing. The greatest gift that we can give our loved ones is the gift of pre-planning for their future. You know, that we all have this burden of thinking, you know, who's going to care for my loved one? Who's going to care for my child? Who's going to be there? What kind of life are they going to have? And there are some variables that we will never be able to control. But one of the things we always talk about is the things that you can then control the controllables. Make Absolutely. it happen and, and give yourself a realistic time frame, but make it happen because it will absolutely be the greatest gift that you can give not only to the loved one that's affected, but to any of the other family members that in the event something happened to you as a parent, as the guardian, as the custodial parent, that all the people that are surrounding the circumstance that you are giving them the greatest gift you could give, not just your child. And so in closing on that, you know what, Haley, it has been great. And I can't wait to have you back to talk about other topics. And for our audience, want to be sure that they know that they can reach you. You know, the Arc of Texas is located in Austin. Their phone number is 512-454-6694. And you can look them up at www.thearcoftexas.org. That's www.t-h-e-a-r-c-o-f. T-E-X-A-S dot org. Take a look and then be sure to look at the page for the podcast because we will have the PowerPoints that Haley talked about with the additional information and the definitions of the different types of trust and the services that the Ark of Texas provides to be able to be a greater support to you. And please share this episode, the one before, with friends and family because we know that there are many, many people 
that need this information. They need the encouragement. And what a great gift to give someone the ability to have knowledge, to be empowered. Because when you get to that place, if you are looking for an attorney, if you are going to be doing this in the private sector, time is money. And so for all of these family members or guardians, it's an expense. And so the more that we can empower our community or empower the parents and the guardians of these individuals, the further ahead they're going to be. And again, take a look. Haley's more than happy to provide information on the benefits of the Master Pool Trust and why that may be a good option for you and for your family long term. And I can tell you firsthand that she has been very fair, equitable, and balanced and been an encouragement to me personally and our family to help us navigate through some of these processes. So don't hesitate to reach out. As far as the podcast and episodes, stay in touch. Hit us up on Facebook or Instagram, and please keep listening. We're on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. So for now, we'll be closing out the afternoon, and we just appreciate you joining us and hope that your family has continued health and wellness and prosperity. And Haley, thank you again for being here and just providing the insight and encouragement to our families on Connected with Micah. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Thank you.